I'm not sure I've shared the story with you as to kind of how I decided to preach on, on Romans 12 during these weeks, but kind of the reconsideration of Romans 12 that I've been doing grows out of a, of a request by a couple whose wedding I did in early April that their wedding homily during the service come from Romans 12, and they read a portion of it, but they really meant the whole chapter, and and it's not unusual for a, a couple to request this, although it's less usual than someplace like 1 Corinthians 13 or Colossians 3, 12 and following. It's not one of the more often used passages at a wedding, but because it's about genuine love, it does get chosen. And on occasion, I, what I will do with couples when I help them to prepare their wedding ceremony, I'll give them a list of scriptures that I've used or that other couples have requested during this part, and they can choose from that. And, you know, frankly, most couples don't choose that and, and don't choose Romans 12. And the sentiment embodied in that choice not to choose it comes especially from one groom who said, as he looked it over in the context of our session, looked at Romans 12, he says, that sounds exhausting to me. <laughs> I'm not sure our marriage is going to be about saving the world, is what he said. I kind of appreciated his honesty. It is exhausting. Romans 12 is exhausting if you, you read it. I understand the sentiment. It's exhausting if you see it, however, as a list of virtues that you need to strive to acquire. If it just becomes a series of flashcards that you're trying to remind yourself of, of what you should be, uh, then it is exhausting because it is so often at the end of the day very clear to us that we were none of these things. So passages like Romans 12 where Paul just seems to be enjoying walking around the room spouting off about all of the things we need to be can be exhausting to us. But there's one little word at the beginning of this chapter that brings the text down to a manageable size. And we've been talking about that through this series where Paul says right at the beginning, I urge you, brothers and sisters, and here's the great qualifier for all of those 20 verses to follow. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. I urge you by the mercies of God. God's mercy is the means by which our transformation and our growth into genuine love that Paul is describing here is made possible. Because as we've seen, mercy inspires humility. Humility works itself outward in curiosity. And those things together set us on a path of what I want to talk about today which is empathy. And I'm going to read the second half of, of Romans 12 today. We've read the first half in, in the first weeks, and I want to read the second half and, and then read the whole chapter next week as we talk about intimacy. But what we'll see is that this second half of this chapter is about much more than empathy, but it embodies a description of how empathy develops and what makes empathy possible within us. And so let's look at Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. 
Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. And if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, help us to rest in this vision of genuine love and to see it as that love which issues forth from your heart and so invites us to that place of receiving your offer of an invitation of relationship. And then by resting in that relationship, empower us by your spirit to reflect the very nature of yourself that you have put in us when you created us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, all the talk about mercy and Paul's heading of mercy over this whole chapter is really the point that I'm trying to make with all of that is that it is mercy, the mercy of God specifically, that grows genuine love in us. But one of the ways that mercy grows genuine love in us is that it initially occasions a crisis, something that's hard for us to deal with. Grace and mercy build life in us, but they do so initially, quite frankly, by ripping us open and removing something in each of us that stands in the way of learning how to love. There's a character in Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, we or most of us have not endured the task of reading that entire book. Uh, it's about this thick in paperback. But we've seen the musical. And the character that I want to mention in Les Miserables is the lawman Javert, who has dedicated his life to pretty much putting away criminals because he's convinced that that's the best way to a utopian good world is to get rid of all evil and to enforce the law properly. And he has an issue throughout the play with Jean Valjean, the, the main character who has initially been sent to prison for stealing a loaf of bread and then escapes and creates a new life because of the grace of a priest who gives him two candlesticks and 
silver candlesticks that he sells and, and is able to parlay into a new life. And yet Javert comes to grips with the truth that Valjean has escaped, that he knows where he is, and that this one who is posing as an upstanding person actually is a criminal and needs to be rearrested. And so he, much of the dynamic of the play between these two characters is, is about Javert pursuing and Jean Valjean fleeing from Javert's pursuit. And what happens at some point is that there is an encounter between these two where Valjean has the opportunity to kill Javert and he does not do it. He chooses to be merciful instead. And what happens because of that dynamic is what I'm talking about for Javert. He is ripped open by the breaking up of his world of order and his world of law and his certainty about how that should be enforced. Because suddenly he has been the recipient of mercy. And he's unable to tolerate that mystery of mercy. And, and the writers of the musical put these words in his mouth just before he kills himself because he cannot tolerate mercy. He cannot abide grace. It absolutely rocks his world and it makes everything he's been about seem meaningless to him. And so he says, who is this man? What sort of devil is he? to have me caught in a trap and choose to let me go free. It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, to wipe out the past and wash me clean off the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his, and he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the debt of a thief, damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase, I am the law, and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. As he says just before he jumps off the bridge, I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go on. We are unable to tolerate the mystery of mercy when we, our certainty is violated and somehow mercy seems a contradiction to it. Javert can't tolerate that mystery of mercy and so he chooses to impose his own judgment on himself and he ends his life. Because if the rules do not hold, says Javert, there's nothing that's holding me in this world. Nothing bigger than my struggle to be obedient to them. There's no room for a different reality. There's no way to comprehend a different truth. There's no possibility of making space for a world that is different from my own, there is no possibility of empathy. Mercy occasions a crisis. It unravels our world. It pries loose our grasp on control. It exposes the weak underbelly of the assumption that the world is controlled 
by our good choices and bad choices, and the world is nothing more and nothing less than a matter of getting our just desserts for those good and bad choices. But what mercy does is it instead puts before us a world where there is the mystery of relationship that is at the center of reality and the perpetuation and the building of relationship being the goal. Where it is grace and not our success or failure at striving to be good that is primarily at issue. Where we all know that we all need grace and mercy and we suddenly become aware of others. Mercy occasions a crisis because it opens us up to finding and experiencing empathy. Mercy is both a crisis and an experience of joy. It's the crisis and joy of our world suddenly getting bigger. And that's a crisis because our neat little world of rules and good choices gets taken from us. And it's a joy because under God's mercy, there's room for what we thought we could not abide and had to cast out. And so much of Romans 12 is about just this movement. It's hard to identify any particular place where empathy is being encouraged in and of itself. But I I want to reduce those verses that I read this morning to just two verses that seem to talk specifically about empathy and the way it is achieved in us. The first one is that line in verse 14 where Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In other words, strive to know and strive to feel what those you are encountering are knowing and and feeling. Genuine love is about space opening up in us to feel what others feel, and that's what empathy is. It's to act in that godlike and Christ-like way of laying aside our prerogatives, our various insistences on how we are so right, and making space for others who might not see it in the same way. It's the assurance when we talk about rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's the assurance that there is room in us to do this because we're all under God's mercy, every single human being, because we're all created by God for relationship with God. And we can therefore release our grip on certainty about our rightness because we are in the grip of the steadfast love of God, all of us. And that leads to the second phrase. I love this line, and I have used this line at a wedding to the laughter and consternation of the congregation when I did but leave room for the wrath of God. I think there can be no better advice to a couple in the throes of marital argument than to leave room for the wrath of God because we're so damn good at expressing our wrath to one another. 
Leave room for the wrath of God. It's a strategy for how to achieve empathy. It's a strategy for how to step back and recognize that we are in the arms of someone bigger than both of us or all of us and therefore much bigger than the dispute that is dividing us. Step back from the judgment born of our own certainty and trust that something more certain is at work in us and among us and to trust God to handle the problems we're having with the other. The irony is that by making room for God's wrath, what we're actually making room for is the essential character of God, which is grace and mercy. And that is the wrath, that grace and mercy is the wrath that drives out wrath. That's that bit about heaping burning coals on your enemy's head by repaying abuse with kindness is that you literally displace the evil in the kindness that is asserted. Making room for God's wrath is actually making room for God's mercy. And it will empower us to treat our enemy like our neighbor and our friend. It will empower us to see a world that is much bigger than the cramped world of our own creation and begin to make space for the other who is also in need of mercy. I read a book recently by Frank Bruni. Actually, it was Phyllis Kruger who gave it to me. Frank Bruni is a New York Times op-ed columnist who who now teaches journalism at Duke University. Maybe it is Duke. It's somewhere in North Carolina. But I, I know that uh, it might be UNC. I'm not sure. But he, um, he's teaching journalism now and, and also continuing to write for the, the New York Times. And in the book, it's a memoir. And in the book, he basically talks about the way in which this kind of freak stroke put pressure on his optic nerve and how he lost sight in one eye. And also was threatened with losing sight in the other in the same way because of the condition from which he suffers. He talks about the way in which this injury that caused partial blindness led him to see certain things that he would not have otherwise seen. And, and he speaks of something that is, for our purposes today, is, I think, an, an incredible illustration of empathy and the way we nurture it. And he, he talks about in a chapter called The Sandwich Board Theory of Life. He talks about the, the work of learning how to imagine how we are all wearing kind of invisible sandwich boards. You know what I'm talking about, the, the boards on either side with straps connecting them and, and there's some message emblazoned on the board and people walk around advertising that message. Well, he's saying we're all wearing invisible sandwich boards with some message about our, our weakness or our infirmity or the struggle that we're having or the failures that, uh, from which we suffer, that all of us are wearing those. And that a part of training ourselves in empathy is to begin to assume that those sandwich boards are there and that we can't see them and to strive to know what's actually on them and, and to let that come into view. It's kind of an interesting exercise. 
And he talks about that in this chapter. I will just want to read one little section where he talks about this. He says, imagine that our hardships, our hurdles, our demons, our pain were spelled out for everyone around us to see. Imagine that each of us donned a sandwich board that itemized them. Quote, failed marriage, inconstant ex-husband, autistic son who can't abide babysitters. Bicycle accident, shredded face, agonizing pain. A dozen operations can no longer feel a kiss. Plane crash, metal leg, dead eight-year-old son. Debilitating headaches, near constant shrieking in ears. Frequent thoughts of suicide. I didn't have to think long or hard to come up with these examples. I didn't have to compel people in question to share what they were going through. It would dribble out in asides and unguarded moments, and I just had to be sensitive enough to hear and to hold on to the details. I now was, because of his stroke, I now was. I picked up on comments that might have whizzed by me before and lingered in conversational spaces that I would have once hurried past or detoured to avoid. Finding empathy actually frees us. It frees us because we suddenly realize we're not the only ones who struggle. We're not the only ones who are broken. We're not the only ones who are in need of mercy. To have that realization, I am not the only one, is a good thing. But Paul takes it a step farther in Romans 12 and essentially says, I'm not the only one in need of God. I'm not the only one being held by God. So to quote the passage once again, Brothers and sisters, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, do not claim to be wiser than you are, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all, and if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess to you that it is easier sometimes not to see and to live in the comfort of our own blindness or myopia that sees only the world about which we are certain. We confess to you that it is easier at times to not have mystery because it's so much easier to conclude something about ourselves or about another. But expand our vision and help us by your mercy to see our need for mercy and so open us up to the truth that you bring that mercy to everyone we encounter. And then release us into that broad and open space of understanding that we can release our grip on what we think we have to be and do to redeem the world and entrust ourselves and others to you 
to do the thing that only you can do, which is to love us perfectly. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.